Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and dynamic women invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and my guest today is Thomas Hischak, whose new book is titled The Abbott Touch, Pal Joey, Damn Yankees, and the Theater of George Abbott. For more than 80 years, from 1913 to 1994, George Abbott was a major force in the American theater. As an actor, director, playwright, book writer, play doctor, and producer, he applied his famous touch to more than 100 plays and musicals, from Rodgers and Hart's On Your Toes to Stephen Sondheim's A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Remarkably, this book is the first to take this kind of deep dive into Abbott's work and career and to analyze just how he worked, what he contributed, what innovations he brought to Broadway, and how he stayed at the top of his field for so long. And of course, the most fundamental question of all, what exactly was that famous Abbott touch? This episode is made possible in part through the generous support of Patron Club members Ruth Oberg, Elizabeth Troxler, and Juan J. Neumeister. If you too would like to support the work of Broadway Nation, I'll have information at the end of the episode about how you can join the club. Thomas Hischak is the author of more than 30 books about Broadway, Hollywood, and popular music, including The Oxford Companion to the American Musical, The Rodgers and Hammerstein Encyclopedia, and Broadway Decoded, Musical Theater's Forgotten References. And as you might imagine, with that kind of depth of knowledge, it was an absolute delight to talk with him about Mr. Abbott. Here we go. Welcome, Thomas Hischak, to Broadway Nation. It's my great pleasure to welcome you here to talk about your new book, The Abbott Touch, Pal Joey, Damn Yankees, and the Theater of George Abbott. Thank you. Glad to be here. 
So happy to talk about this. Uh, of course, this whole podcast is about the history of the Broadway musical, and very few people had more to do with the history of the Broadway musical than George Abbott, even if many people today don't know that name or don't know who he is. But they'll know his shows. They'll definitely know his shows. And let's start there. 117 shows on Broadway is your best count of this? Yeah, it's a hard count to do because he did a lot of uncredited things. He was not billed for some things. Some were revivals that he really didn't work on. So it's a hard one to pin down. They've always said it was 100, you know, but it's a little bit over that. An 80-year career from 1913 to 1994. Unbelievable, yeah. I mean, it truly is staggering when you think about it. And one of the major themes of Broadway Nation and the course that I teach is how the entire history of the Broadway musical is connected person to person, mm -hmm. that this is an art form that's handed down almost like a medieval craft from one person to the next. When you think about that 80-year career and those 117 shows, the number of people that he connected with and how you would trace those to the people working today, sometimes people say, well, why talk about George Abbott? Because he's affected everything that's happening on Broadway today would be my answer to that. Yes, and some of the people that he influenced are still very much alive and working. So it's not all past history. To think that the same man worked with David Belasco in the teens <laughs> and then was working with Carol Burnett and Liza Minnelli and other people who are still with us, usually early in their careers. Yeah, if you connected everybody he's worked with, you would have the American theater, not just musicals, but theater as well. Absolutely. And that's so clear from the book. At the beginning of the book, you'd say it's not a biography. It's about the theater of George Abbott, as the subtitle would indicate. What inspired you to create this? I wondered why there was no biography of George Abbott. I wanted to read it. I didn't want to write it. I don't write biographies. And I couldn't find one. How could this man not be written about in terms of this unbelievable career? It would be a thick biography. Well, then I found out he wrote an autobiography, which was rather slim and not very revealing in some areas. And I read it, and I really enjoyed part of it, but I felt, my goodness, what about your work? I can't believe that this man would not mention that he got an Oscar nomination. Nobody even <laughs> thinks he did movies and he got an Oscar nomination for the script of All Quiet on the Western Front. Here's a guy who won the Pulitzer Prize and never mentions it. I finally got to Damn Yankees, and I wanted to see what he had to say. And all he said was, oh, yeah, I got together with Hell Prince and so-and-so and so-and-so. And, -so, and it was a hit. That's it. <laughs> you know? I didn't want to write the biography because he did write about personal stuff and his marriages. He was actually surprisingly revealing. This biography came out in 1963. Biographies or autobiographies weren't all tell-all you know, but things. Right. And uh, his was pretty frank. And in 63, he was at the top of his game. He had three shows running on Broadway. He was still it. And he wrote this autobiography. Unfortunately, that was the turning point. His career just a descending from that point on for another 30 years. So I said, that's why there's no biography, because he did it. But does somebody not want to do it? I don't know. But I said, something's got to be done about his career. Just the number of plays he worked on and important plays. But 
mostly people remember him for the musicals now. So that's what spurred the book. I don't want to write the biography, but I do want to write about his life in terms of everything he did. And that was enough. When you set yourself a hard task, because I think capturing what a director does, people really don't understand what a director does. And it is a very hard thing to explain, much less to talk about what a director did 50 years ago on a production. I mean, he starts directing before the director becomes the all-powerful position that it is today. There were some famous directors, but it was usually producers, playwrights, stars, when he starts in the teens. To become a director who's well-known in the business by everybody, that takes something in the teens and 20s. Look at all the the Rodgers and Hart musicals and the uh, Cole Porter musicals of the 20s and 30s. And the first thing that does not come to your mind is who directed them. Probably more likely to know the choreographer than you would the director. So it is kind of unusual in that respect. But he wrote many of the scripts that he directed. You've got two things to look at uh, when I'm talking about his directing and what people said about how he staged things and the reviews of how things moved. But you also had the words, the characters. He almost always worked with someone else, though. So it's hard to pin down is this George Abbott with this great line here or this idea here? Because he very rarely worked alone. I would imagine it's also very hard to separate his directing from his writing. Right. He wrote the way it was going to be directed. The way they wrote musicals in the 30s, he knew how to write the short scene, the long scene. The short scene was, you know, the punch at the end. He knew he was going to be directing them. When we do them today, we do them that way, unless they change the script. We do them that way without realizing we're probably copying his direction. And I think that's true of his plays, too isn't it? He wrote the plays with the idea that he was going to direct most of them. Mm-hmm. And he's directing them on the page to a certain extent. Right. Just looking at the stage directions, you could tell this is a director talking sometimes. He started at the same time doing both. His very first script on Broadway was also his first co-directing project. His career as a director and his career as a writer start at the same time and they go all the way to the end. His very last shows, he was still writing them and directing them. Those two jobs tied together in his vision, which is so interesting because we have come to an idea. I don't know when it came in, the idea that writers shouldn't direct their own work. You know, you hear that all the time. And yet some of the most successful writers, Abbott being one of them, Noel Coward being another one I could think of, always directed their own work. Right. There was no question of it. Noel Coward has a new play and you knew you were going to get the play and the director. And maybe the star. And and in this case, yeah, yeah, on stage. The very idea of a director doesn't even exist until the, you know, 20th century. Why would you be worried about who's going to direct it and how it's going to be? It's like, no, the playwright often stepped in. Producers were often directors also. David Belasco directed all of his productions. So you got that hierarchy of who's in charge. So it's not a biography, but you do give us some details about his life along the way to help us context. And he doesn't have the typical background for Broadway figures from this period. And in fact, he's one of the big exceptions to the premise of my podcast, which is that the Broadway musical was invented by immigrants, Jews, queers, and African-Americans. He's a straight wasp male. Now, I did some studies on this. I identified 350 people who were the most significant people in the history of the Broadway musical from 1900 to today. And 31 of them are straight white wasp males. 
I'm surprised there was that many. <laughs> <laughs> I'd still, it's still, it's less than 10, that. you know, it's 10% or less yeah. than 10%. My students ask and I go, um, Cole Porter, <laughs> Meredith Wilson, and I can't think of anybody else. <laughs> yeah, and Cole Porter's gay and, you know, yeah. They're not Cole Porter. I was thinking yeah. of Meredith Wilson. Oh, no, who was the other? Uh, oh, um, no, Frank Lesser was Jewish. Oh, who am I forgetting? Yeah. I usually have three examples right there at the tip of my tongue. Oh, George M. Cohen. <laughs> George M. Cohen. Oh, he's, he's Irish, though. He's an Irish immigrant. He, so I immigrant. put him in that. In that period, the Irish were just as marginalized as anybody, were even more marginalized than most people. So The one you didn't mention, that Abbott comes from a rural background. Most of them come from the city. They grew up going to the theater. They knew other art forms. And he's a farm boy. He doesn't go to New York. He doesn't even see a New York show until he moves there in 1912, I believe it is. So he's not coming with this urban idea. He's this big strapping athlete who just fell in love with theater. And that's just not typical. Where does that come from? Where does he fall in love with theater? Of course, theater was everywhere in that period because that's the only entertainment there was. Right. To him, it was academic. It was at high school, then definitely at University of Rochester. And then he actually went to Harvard, but he dropped out after a year because he got offers to you know work. It didn't come from the home. It didn't come from his community. He lived in very small towns. But boy, once he got to Rochester and once he got to Boston or Cambridge, he saw everything. I mean, he soaked it up. So he had to make up for lost time. So in some ways, he's this fish out of water in this New York scene once he arrives there. Like anybody else, he's really green. You know, he doesn't, <laughs> even the ones that were more sophisticated, they're just knocking at doors. He's going around trying to say, I could write plays and I could direct plays and I can act. Take any one of those. (laughs) Ironically, it was the acting that got him his first work. He's a big guy. So, I mean, he's tall and he's athletic and they cast him in a couple of parts just because of that. But then he gets in a play in Abraham's bosom. It wins the Pulitzer Prize. He has the leading role. I mean, for an actor, it'd be like, wow, you've arrived. But to him, it was just another show. And for a long he'd stopped acting he got too involved with the directing and writing but i mean that would be a great credit for any actor to say i went down in history as the leading role in this not most brilliant play of all time but wonderful surprise and it was talked about and appreciated in its day that's also unusual you know that you have this triple threat but you just let one drop if the other one comes along. He had studied playwriting and he comes to New York with some plays or at least some ideas for plays in his pocket, yeah. right? Right. He took the famous class that everybody talks about, Baker's class at uh, Harvard. And he said he learned a lot. So many playwrights came out of that. He thought he would be in the area of a Eugene O'Neill kind of playwright. He really did. He wanted dramas that were great and profound. He couldn't write those and he didn't get those to direct very often. He got a lot of melodramas at first. Then he got farces for a while. And not until he'd been in the business for 30 years that he started doing musicals. You know, and that's what he's most known for today. But he never gave up on directing other things. Yeah, he's not in the pattern of what most people did when they went to New York, especially during that fertile period in the late teens and definitely the 20s when things were really, you know, in the 20s, there were so many shows on Broadway that you needed to have a second and a third string critic. One critic could not cover it all. And I think it reached its peak by 1927. Nine shows opened on one night. Nine shows, that's half the season for us today. (laughs) 
but it was a quite a time. So there's a lot of theater and he was soaking it up, seeing it and eventually getting involved in it. And a lot of opportunity for somebody ambitious, obviously, in the way yes. that he was. Very ambitious. Uh, so what are those first plays that he writes? We want to spend a lot of time talking about the musicals, because as you say, that's what he's become right. most known for. But it all starts with the plays and that work that he does on the plays continues into the musicals, really. Right. At melodramas or comedies, The Fall Guy was his first hit, but a huge hit. And we don't do it anymore today, but the show called Broadway. And it was like the show people talk Talked about it for years. It ran quite a while. And it's been made into a movie three times, I think. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's, a, it's a gangster backstage, pretty uh, tough. We look at today, it's a little cliched, but it actually predates most of the cliches. It uh, invented it, the cliches, didn't it's it? That's right. Your 30s gangster movies, your backstage movies, is what it reminds you of, but this predates all that, you know, it was in the 20s. Um, I had watched the movie okay. version of that not too long ago and was just really? surprised. I was really taken with it, actually. It was quite engaging. I think the dialogue just still crackles, you know. It's that wonderful, stylized, kind of tough guy thing. Hello, sweetheart. You got a nerve busting in like this? You don't always knock when you come to visit me. I don't visit you, Scott. You visit my neighborhood sometimes, don't you, see? Do you want it? It all depends on how you look at it. I'm just telling you, Scott. Come gumshoe in the back way of a strange place, you know, somebody might mistake you for a burglar. No, I ain't scared of you guys. I came down here to have a showdown, alone, and with no gun. So let's talk, Turkey. Meaning what? Oh, you know what I mean. You've been poaching on me, Steve. You've been cutting in on my territory, and it's got to stop. Will you listen to that? You own everything above 125th Street, do you? We stopped that territory, and we've got a right to it. And nobody, get that? Nobody from down here is going to cut in. And you hijacked another of my trucks last night, didn't you? Well, I'm here to tell you, Steve, you can't get away with it. You're looking for trouble, is that it? From now on, 125th Street is the deadline, get me? Yeah? Yeah. Well, that's just dandy, Scar. And now, if you've spoken your little piece, you can take the air. And I happen to be the guy who can clean up a few murder mysteries in this town. I don't suppose you know who bumped off O'Connell. What are you talking and about? And who dumped his body up in Harlem so my mob would get blamed for it? What are you driving this at? This is what I'm driving Wait at. Wait a minute. I've waited long enough. Now get this. You guys stay down in your own territory and leave my trucks alone, see? Because I've got the dope on you, Steve. You croaked, O'Connell. Look here. Take your hands off me, I'll bust your face. You guys can't put me out of business. And he was good at it, and uh, but he also turned around and wrote farces and whatnot. I think because of the way he directed both melodramas and farces, I think that got his plays a little bit more attention than if somebody else had directed them. Because he was insistent on scene changes and tempo and what word is punched and where you stop and don't move on this line, you move on that line. I think if he was just writing, those plays wouldn't have been as popular. But because he directed them, and he directed them well, he really had a dual career going because of it. The critics who don't know what to say about direction you know it's always they still don't they always mentioned his direction even if it was something superficial like wow it was directed at a rapid pace or wow it really was punched here and there you know with the lines or the jokes uh, or boy he really knew how to get this big dramatic scene going they always talked about his directing and I find that that's one of the areas that critics least talk about because they don't know much about it they rather talk about performances and songs and things like that I was struck 
struck by that too, because you filled the book with quotes from the critics for every one of his shows. And right from the beginning, they start talking about his direction. Yep. And the idea of the Abbott touch starts even back in the 1920s, doesn't it? We can't pinpoint it, but they're definitely using it by 1930 and it's been used. So yeah, that's pretty good to be noticed for a particular style back then. For a director to become a brand name in a way, it's yes. really unusual. As yeah. you say, at a time when directors are anonymous for the most part, he somehow stands out. Go a little further in what you were just identifying. What are the things that critics start to notice and that other producers start to notice, other playwrights start to notice that he brings to a show? I think what most impressed them was the efficiency, the almost military-like precision of the way he directed a play. He came from a military school, and I think some of that held on. And he thought in terms of executing a scene with absolute precision. He didn't think of it in terms of, let's talk about character or, you know, the moment or whatnot. He was more interested in this is how it plays. And if you don't say it that way, it's not going to play as well. And it sounds kind of superficial, but he knew so well. He knew that if you reverse two words in one of his lines, especially if he wrote it, if you reverse two words, he said, you're not going to get a laugh. It's not funny. You have to say this order. That's what's funny. And you better say it on this one here. Oh, God, one point, many times people ask him, what's his touch or what's the Abbott touch? And he says, uh, it's all rehearsing precisely what's going on. You say this word, the next person has to come in. You make sure that they are talking before you have finished breathing that last word. And he would really pound them you know, with this. It's almost like he knew exactly what it was supposed to sound like and look like. And that was his job to try to get the actors to do that. Didn't he also say, I make them finish their final consonants? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wait a minute, it's going. It's not going, you know, unless you're doing a dialect. And he thought generally actors were sloppy in that way. And his job was a taskmaster to say, no, it's drowned, you know, not drowned. He did that a lot. In a way, he was sort of like an efficiency expert because he made these shows really move efficiently. Yes. He had a sense of even the scenery, you know. He was very involved in the scenery. And is this going to take too long? And is this not going to take too long? And cut this because I can't get from A to B with that kind of a set. He talks about one of his big disasters in the teens was a huge production. Oh, I forget exactly what. The designer had built this giant turntable so they could keep the scene moving one after another. He wrote later, many years later, saying we found out that the turntable could not turn any faster than a minute for a full revolution, right? And he says a minute in the theater <laughs> without something happening is an hour. It feels like forever. And they couldn't change it, you know. They couldn't right. make it go faster. They couldn't redo the set. And he blamed the failure of the production on that technical thing. You know, George M. Cohan was famous for some of those same techniques. Yes. Was George Abbott picking up on that, do you think, and taking yeah. it even to another level? Yeah, he saw Cohan's work and he loved it. Not just the musicals, but the plays. Now, Cohan is still working all the way into the 30s. So he saw his shows in the teens and the 20s. And he was one of the few directors that he emulated. He worked with all kinds of directors as an actor and as a playwright. And he took, this guy's good at this, but he's not at all good at that. This guy's good here. Cohan was one of the few that he said he got it right. And I'd like to do that. 
it's hard to imagine now what it was like to sit in most plays, not directed by George Abbott in the late teens or early 20s. Do you imagine that it was like seeing a high school production today where there might be long scene changes, the curtains closed, and you just sit there and wait and wait and wait, and the orchestra plays or something happens, and then the scene happens again? Yeah, or sometimes you look at not just high school, but let's say an amateur production of a show that was a big hit on Broadway, but it's not directed, you know, so well, and it has these lags in it, and it's like, what were they so crazy about on Broadway? This show is not that strong. Well, it was strong on Broadway. It was directed so much better. The script isn't going to solve it for you. He is the old style of the best efficient way to keep a musical going was through a series of drops, scenes in front, scenes in back, go back and forth, so you're never waiting for the set to change. So let's say the scene in front, it might only be about five lines and it's got a joke at the end, but that is enough for them to make the set change behind. Sometimes it's a whole musical number. He wrote them knowing that this was the system. By the 60s, you know, they're finding much more interesting ways. He worked with the scenic designer Gene Eckert, and Eckert is the one who had to say, you know, we don't have to do the drops. We could have a whole turntable on stage with part of the set, and it could partially move, or something can do this. And He needed younger people to tell him that sometimes we've come up with better ways to move things. He was the old master, and I don't think too often he thought there was much to be learned, but in the area of scenic changes, he had to meant, yeah, that you could do other ways, or the script isn't written that way. I think the best example I ever had of seeing what George Abbott's works looked like was when he directed the revival of On Your Toes. It was in the 90s. Actually, I saw it in London, but it was the same production. And I had never seen a show that was so strict for the first scene, back scene, back and forth. It was kind of nostalgic, although not that I remembered it. I just thought, yeah, that was a real interesting way to do a show. And that production was so good. It's like, yeah, to see all those dancers on stage and then by just lifting a drop, we're in the next scene and we could do something totally different. And we'd spend no time waiting in the dark. He directed that show probably the way he directed it back in the 30s and it still worked. First, we'll hear the two pianos. Then we'll sneak in a solo trumpet and add the traps softly. Now the fiddles will have a counter melody. Gradually, the woodwinds. And then the whole band. And now, the song.
Yeah, I saw that too. And it was delightful to see. And of course, it was at that time of the big nostalgia craze. So we yeah. were sort of hungry to see things like that. Right. The fact that it was old fashioned in a certain way was part of its appeal. Oh, yeah. The plot, which I think is delightfully silly, we wouldn't buy today in a new musical, but we sure believed it and had a good time with it with an old musical. And when that revival's happening and he's directing it, he's already in his 80s. Oh, my goodness. My I know you have to do the math, but... Uh, <laughs> it's probably late 80s, yeah. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah. I mean, but, that's one of the things about the book is just to see mm -hmm. this career just goes on and on and on yeah. and on. The shows he's most noted for, he's already in his 70s. When oh, he's yeah. Happened. Oh, easily, yeah. I got to talk to Lara Teeter, who played the leading dance role in On Your Toes, the revival in the 90s. And I said, you know, what was this guy like? And he said he was directing like he did this every day of his life and he knew exactly what he was doing and he forgot that he was as old as he was. He has unbelievable energy. He's jumping on the stage. He's getting off the stage. He's showing people this, doing that. When you first met him, he said, oh my God, this guy is old. But once you start working with him, he says, it's like we felt tired, you know. <laughs> Carol Burnett goes into a great deal about how she couldn't keep up with him when he's directing her in Once Upon a Mattress. That's late 50s. And uh, he's in his 70s and she's 26 something and she's out of breath saying i can't keep up with you you know yeah that was an amazing aspect of him that he was the old master but didn't look at him and say oh my god here's the frail old guy who's gonna come in and do it the old way even in his very last years when he was so feeble none of them said that the people that worked with him they all said he walked in he ends his career doing these really small, off-off-Broadway musicals, you know, with hardly any money, no scenery. And they said he directed that as if it was Broadway. It made no difference. It was a serious, and this is going to be this, and we're going to do this. It was amazing. To him, a show was a show. I think one of the people you quote says he was the first person there in the morning and the last person yes. to leave every day at yeah. rehearsal, even yeah. in his 90s at that point. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah, quite amazing. Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be right back. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make every day delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. 
That's code BN50 at factormeals.com slash BN50, as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's interesting because you talk about he starts out in some ways as an innovator and a disruptor in terms of both his playwriting and his directing because he's introducing a lot of new techniques, especially in terms of staging. What we now think as very old fashioned techniques, he's inventing them. He's inventing that in one process or at least taking what he saw some other people do parts of and codifying it and making the whole show do that. But how long can you stay at the cutting edge and be the one that's introducing things? You could do it 10 years, you could do it 20 years, but no one's going to do it for 60 years. (laughs) He was definitely considered old school by the time the 60s came, even though he had some very successful shows. You know, by then we're looking at Bob Fosse and we're looking at, you know, Harold Prince is starting to direct. The director is really becoming the show. And here's this old guy who's just doing it the way we always did it, you know? He was written off by some people to say, well, he's past his prime. I really feel that after he had a couple of flops, he never was given decent scripts, good musicals. I defy someone to take some of those musicals and turn them into a hit. He didn't write most of them at the end, but they were not strong. He's tried to save them as much as he could, but he wasn't given good stuff. And then, of course, the shows weren't very good. So then, again, he wasn't given good things. Of your list of directors, he wasn't the go-to. You know, you wanted to get, you know, Gower Champion first for a musical. You know, you wanted to get Michael Bennett or something. He wasn't on that list. (laughs) But all those people started out working for him. Every one of them. (laughs) Which is interesting. I wonder how he felt about that. Every single one. When they were kids and he was showing them how to direct. And he was telling them, this dance doesn't work. You'd imagine going to Jerome Robbins, you know, one of the great egos of all time. And for him to say, we're cutting it. It's no good. It's not working. Don't tell me it's art. I'm telling you, it doesn't work. All these people were like students in his classroom, you know, and they all became giants in the business. And there he is still teaching school sometimes. Let's talk about those students, because one of the hallmarks of George Abbott is that he almost always wanted to work with young, new, emerging people. Yes. Thomas and I will be back next week with more on the amazing legacy of George Abbott and the incredible list of Broadway's best writers, directors, performers, and choreographers who all got their start under Mr. Abbott's mentorship. If you love this podcast, here's the information about how you can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for this podcast. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech that's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech 
or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Thank you in advance for your very generous support. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.